Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of our digital dialogue series, where we're talking and learning with some amazing thinkers and activists, organizers, and farmers about land and our relationships to land, as well as issues around food sovereignty, indigenous land rematriation, land back, and relational accountability. My name's Sarah Rotz, and today Danielle Boissonneau and I, with the Rare Collective, are speaking with Anne Spice, who is a queer Indigenous feminist and anti-colonial organizer and an assistant professor in geography and environmental studies at X University. We'll be speaking about rematriation, Indigenous sovereignty and accountability in our relationships within the context of land struggles and resistance against colonial extraction. Thanks for tuning in and sharing in these important conversations. Thanks for being here, Anne. Um, we had a few questions for you today, and I'll get started with this one, um, as we usually do in Indigenous communities, and asking, uh, what's your name, your nation, your clan, and your ancestry? Uh, maybe tell us a bit about yourself, who you see yourself accountable to, and who are your people? Uh, sure. So I am Inland Tlingit. I am a member of Kwanlin Dun First Nation, which is um, just around Whitehorse, Yukon. Uh, I grew up on um, Treaty 7 territories in Southern Alberta. Um, so that that's definitely one of the places that I, I feel like is, is home, but a home on, on other people's territory. Um, and I've been spending more and more time up in the Yukon uh, on, my own, on my own land. Uh, in recent years. So that's um, something I'm sort of growing back into uh, as a space. And then I've also spent a lot of time on Wet'suwet'en territory in northern BC. Um, and so definitely still feel like I have uh, accountability to people there. Um, uh, so yeah, I think those are kind of the main the main places. And I currently live in, in Toronto. <laughs> um, so I've kind of been all over the place. And um, yeah, I've lived in a lot of a lot of different spaces across North America and further abroad, um, but I think those are the those are the main ones that keep kind of calling me back. So, can you share a little bit about how you how you perceive your relationship to land, and does this have to do maybe with this concept of rematriation? Maybe it doesn't. If you can share a little bit about that, and maybe if there are connections to rematriation, and what you understand rematriation to be. Yeah, I um, when I looked at the questions that you had sort of cast for this, I realized that I like don't really use uh, the word matri- rematriation very much in my <laughs> in my work or in my thinking. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure why that is, but it's just not something I've really sort of uh, made central in the way that I think about uh, relationship to land. Um, I think that I, like growing up, I always, I was always spending a lot of time outside and, um, but I, I was doing so without really any sense of a particular connection to that territory. Um, it's taken you know, a, lo- a lot of years for me to figure out sort of how to reconnect with uh, my own, my own territory and then how to be more responsible in my connection to other people's territory. Um, so I think that there's, Likely, if you were thinking in this framework, you could make a connection with rematriation there. Um, but uh, for me, it's been you know, a real process to try and figure out how to do make those connections again in places where 
uh, for all sorts of reasons. There's been a there's been a disconnect, um, and for me, just not having grown up on my ancestral homelands, uh, that there's a, a lot of work to do to kind of reconnect in that in that area, both with the people and family in that space, but also with the land itself. Um, and I I think. For me, I really learned how to do that. I learned uh, a lot about how to connect with the land and the time I spent on Wet'suwet'en territory. Um, and, the, you know, a lot of that sort of really <coughs> um, kind of like basic logistics of uh, being out in the bush and being less reliant on the sort of systems I had grown up relying on um, and, you know, being in that closer connection because of having to like chop wood and figure out how to stay warm and, um, you know, gather foods from the territory and, and all of that. So I think that's been a piece of kind of reconnecting. And I learned a lot on what's in territory that I'm now just starting to be able to integrate into um, my work and life on my home territory. And I'm curious about learning what rematriation means to you and how the aspect of land fits in specifically as related to concepts, processes, principles, um, even things like ownership versus access. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of forces that are pulling us away from the land and that those forces are doing so with um, vicious intent that the, the more disconnected we become, the, the easier it is to extract resources from our lands and the easier it is to, to integrate us in different ways into the economy so that we don't, we fail to connect in the ways that we have been. Um, but I also think it's, um, it's challenging to just, uh, to just sort of jump back into that connection. Like there's all sorts of there's, there's actual skills and there's skill building that needs to happen in order to be able to do that. Um, and those skills have been taken from us as well as we like sort of lose the ability to pass things on generationally. Um, you know, it's, it's embedded in the language and how we relate to, to territory and um, you know, the loss of our languages makes it, you know, that makes that relationship strained. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done to kind of like connect in in those ways and um i i think i mean i I've, I've also used the language of of land back but i always think about like you know sort of like land back and then what like most of us if we if we were able to actually like go and live on our territories and we had full complete control um we like wouldn't be able to you know like i i think about like all of the the skills that we would need to build back up in community in order to be able to actually live on uh, on the land in the way that you know is is in a more responsible way in a more in a way that's not going to cause the kind of destruction um, that we've been swept up in and I, I mean I've seen that with uh, with myself and the skills that I I started with um, even after spending a childhood sort of spent outside and hiking and camping and all of that I still was like so unprepared for like actually kind of being in the bush and um, taking care of myself and being safe out there um, and then kind of training other people as well to take up that work and to to start to to reconnect and I mean people come out without being able to start a fire or to like cook a basic meal. 
And so we have a lot of work to do to be able to like take up those responsibilities because it, um, it, it requires skill and time and attention. And so I think there's an aspect of that that's sort of built more into the concept of rematriation than it is to um, land back alone. Like, I mean, certainly like something that we should be advocating for, but yeah, I think it's a sort of then what kind of thing. <laughs> like, you know, can we actually survive um, in community even? You know, do we have the conflict resolution skills? Are we able to mediate disputes? Can we like live with each other um, in these places? And I think that's, uh, you know, a piece of it that's like coming back into relation that um, it's hard work. And we have a lot, yeah, we have a lot of that to do to get to a point where we could be like reclaiming land in the way that um, we need to. I was actually thinking too about the the politics of land back as you were as you were speaking about some of the, some of the potential um, impacts in terms of different different locations, different communities, the way the ways in which things might differ based on the based on context. So I'm wondering if you even just your experience on Wet'suwet'en territory, what what that might have to offer in terms of the politics of land back. So what does, what could that actually mean in terms of potential processes to whom, how, um, how, how might that look and what, and in the context, especially in the context of ongoing settler colonialism, what are some concerns that might arise? Um, I mean, I don't think they respond well to really, however we frame it. I don't think there's like, um, a way to kind of like tiptoe around what's necessary in order to do what needs to be done to like keep ourselves and the planet from destruction. So I think that it's um, in some ways the language is going to get twisted no matter what we say. But um, I think that uh, there's something in rematriation that like suggests kind of suggests a, a, a kinship, right? That there's like, it's bringing ourselves back into relation with land and into a, a set of relations that um, we've been practicing uh, for generations. And so um, that is, I think, uh, really hard for people, for the state and for industry and others to kind of wrap their heads around. Um, you know, they, they want a, a concept that can easily fit into a property regime that they can figure out who has ownership um, or title or or um, sort of whatever form of like colonial property they assume the land to be. Um, and that's not usually what we mean when we say that we want the land back. Um, we want the land like back in our web of relations, not like back, we own it now. Um, and I think we've been forced in a lot of cases to accept a kind of property ownership framework in order to get the little pieces of control that we're able to get so that we can protect, protect the land. Um, and I, I don't think people are wrong to, to go that route if it's necessary. Um, but I think we do need to sometimes zoom back out and say, this isn't the framework that we use. You know, we don't, we don't think of land as property. This doesn't belong to any of us. Um, we know that it doesn't belong to the settlers <laughs> either, um, especially, but um, I think that that's 
that kind of like like relational kinship framing is really important to hold on to and it's it's important to hold on to like in the midst of these like politics that we're we are framing what we're doing is different from what the state is doing we're not just fighting over pieces of territory um and who gets to kind of say that they own them and um yeah and i think that i don't know it, it gets taken up that gets taken up in difficult ways as well like i think about um these resource extraction projects and uh, especially the pipeline projects that have been working against um those companies often often aren't claiming ownership of territory at all but there's it's still an invasion and it's still destructive and um they're trying to uh pitch a, a sort of weird multiculturalism where like we can continue to practice our culture and the pipeline can still go through and so it's also about i think pointing out the violence of what they're doing regardless of whether or not they think they're settling or stealing or owning anything um and uh yeah and also just like talking to each other about that because yeah we're not going to convince them all that what they're doing is theft but um that's certainly certainly a piece of it is that their control of the, the land makes it makes it much more difficult for us to practice um, really any of the ways we want to be relating uh, on the territory. So I don't know. It's like a, a big question sort of politically, but um, I think that that's, for me, that's the most important thing that it's like understood as a way of like reframing our relations as opposed to like something that gets taken up as being about property. Um, and it's really hard to unsettle that, like that understanding of, of things. Uh, there's like a, such a strong pull to, to understand things as property and to understand land as property. And then I've done this exercise with students before to try and get them to think about what, um, what a relationship to land or anything else might look like if we didn't have a concept of ownership. And it's, it's a hard go to get them into that headspace to really think about like what that might mean. Um, but I was, you know, uh, doing some reading recently and uh, really thinking about how um, for most of humanity, not just indigenous peoples, like property ownership wasn't, wasn't the main framework until like fairly recently. Um, that for a lot of people, land was held in common uh, for most of human history, and that's really only recently shifted. So, um, if you can if you can find a route to like that kind of thinking, I think it uh, it can be productive, um, but it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think of um, the relationship. I'm just um, I'm actually teaching a course right now on uh, global environmental politics and talking about land and capitalism right now and the relationship between property and the imposition of private property was so so central to um primitive accumulation right the the acquisition of of land across spaces and and territories and um how central that's been to to the system that that we have now and when you were saying I'm wondering if you would be able to share a bit more of your experience with the pipeline situation, because the way that you describe it, it made me think about the ways that like capitalism responds to crisis. When I look about it, when I look at it in terms of food and agriculture, we're seeing like we're seeing now the taking up of, of certain kinds of like rentier relationships and 
sort of new forms of renter ownership capitalization that's happening because of because of the limits of of certain kinds of property ap- acquisition and stuff like that and and the way that ownership in its in in its in its traditional form maybe there's barriers to that there's all sorts of political economic barriers and i just i wonder what your observations might be in your work uh, around anti pipelines that's my whole dissertation, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I'm in the middle of writing. So um, it might be a bit of a can of worms. Um, crisis is kind of one thing. Um, and I think, I mean, we're certainly in a, a like particular kind of crisis with climate change that I think capitalism is helping people to completely ignore. Um I think the kind of the sort of leaps of logic that can be used to sort of continue the status quo while pretending to work on that problem are are pretty striking. Um, I think, I mean, the Canadian government buying the Trans Mountain Pipeline and then saying they're going to use the profits to fund the green transition is like the best example of that. It's like actually picking up pipelines and using that continued resource extraction and expansion to, um, you know, transition to a greener future, which also positions Indigenous people who are resisting those pipelines as like blocks to climate action, uh, in and of itself is pretty absurd. Um, as for the the way that the the companies actually like operate on the ground. Um, I mean, it's, it's, this is in British Columbia, which is, you know, it, most of the space is, uh, untreated. Um, so there aren't like original land agreements, uh, that had any sort of ces- cessation involved. Um, so the land that is in, in question is, you know, classified as crown land, um, and so, uh, there's this kind of parallel, this kind of parallel ownership, like these sort of overlapping forms of jurisdiction. And there's a recognition that Indigenous peoples have never given up the land. Um, at the same time as there's an assertion that it's crown land and therefore the police um, especially have ultimate jurisdiction and can enforce what they need to enforce uh, in order to uh, you know, enforce the rule of law. Um, and so... You know, that recognition is kind of uh, it, it. It's given out without without really any material um, to go along with it. You know, it's like you know they'll recognize that this is what's owed in territory. Like, yes, we know we respect the hereditary chiefs, and they'll still remove people <laughs> by force from the territory if necessary. Um, and so, yeah, I think those two things are happening at the same time. And it's also happening uh, with the, the pipeline companies through a kind of um, uh, a redefinition of space. And so they take spaces that have been historical hunting grounds or berry patches. Um, they take the river. They take, you know, all, all of these sort of spaces that people have been using, uh, you know, consistently up until the present. And um, redefine them as construction sites, as the pipeline right of way, as this is a drill pad. This is, um, and then they set in their own rules. And um, 
I think that's uh, one of the main sort of ways that this is functioning is like through these sort of like micro processes that people are picking up bits of territory um, and inscribing a set of rules on them um, that can then be enforced by the RCMP. Um, and you don't get to contest the definition, uh, even though people try, you know, you, you can't be like, no, this is a hunting site. It's not a construction site. Um, you know, they're going to bring in the police to enforce their, their view of what the space, um, is functioning as, uh, so that, that, that's, I think a piece of it. Um, there's a lot more, <laughs> but when we're talking about actually doing this work, right. We were taught, you were talking a lot about like skill building, sort of getting our, getting, working in community, working in relationship to actually sort of prepare ourselves to be on the land in a different way. Could you share a little bit about like how you see that happening, even just the extent to like how you have hope around, I, I know hope is like a super complicated word, but like how you see, you know, what action builds even just trust in that for you and, and um, some of the work that you see happening around that. When you think about the, the work of decolonization or anti-colonialism and its relationship to land, for instance. How do you see that happening? And maybe what are some of the, what are some of the like essential components that are required? And it, it doesn't have to be like, it, we could talk politically, but I even just think like relationally or interpersonally, like what kinds of supports do people need to build? You know, I'm just, I'm thinking about like, if folks are wanting to do certain kinds of land-based work or land sharing work, especially if it's, you know, we're, we're talking about doing some work with more progressive, like settler farmers who own land and they're having an interest in either sharing that land or, you know, quote unquote, giving is, is the common refrain, but maybe there's, there's probably a really a much better term to describe that. I don't actually, um, I'd love to hear if you have one, but you know, that sort of, maybe I, maybe I'm referring it to like that on the ground work. Where do you see that and how do you see that happening? Sorry, I'm finding myself a little bit distracted by that work <laughs> happening like currently. Um, I, I mean, I think any place where you can, uh, when, when people who are in support of Indigenous people can find a way to to both respect the governance systems that have existed um, and also re rework their own relationship to territory. I think there's, um, there's a tendency uh, in a kind of like reaction to, to land back or rematriation initiatives um, or decolonization as the, the sort of language of that to, to react defensively on the part of um, settler folks and newcomers that, um, you know, there's a fear of what might happen should indigenous people have more autonomy and control and I think it's not it's not entirely about sort of like giving the land up, <laughs> um, you know, and there there are ways to talk about sort of like sharing, but it's not it's not exactly sharing in the same way that we might share something um, that is in a 
an ownership regime. It's more about like how you can re reform a relationship to something that, um, you know, all people have been disconnected from the land. Um, and I think there's, I mean, there's really violent, awful disconnections from the land embedded in a system that's also, um, you know, founded in racial slavery. And we have so many like possible connections to make when we focus on like rebuilding a connection to land that is healthy um, and like learning how to do that. Cause most of, most of us don't know, uh, how <laughs> to build up that relationship again. Um, and so I think there's a lot that's possible in, in terms of like learning, learning to do that. The places I've like really seen it is, you know, is, is people showing up to help resist pipeline projects and showing up with skills to offer and also being willing to learn and, um, you know, share in that space, not, not sort of like, you know, they're not sharing exactly the land itself in terms of like its ownership, but they are, um, yeah, contributing, I think, finding ways to contribute and uh, help each other gain the skills necessary to really, um, yeah, be sort of a robust presence in places where, you know, industry and the state are trying to exert more influence and control. Um, yeah, I mean, then there's also those projects I've seen with, you know, starting up gardens in places and helping people get the skills and resources they need to, to feed themselves within their own community. Um, I think that stuff's, you know, really important. It's important to have like local economies that are functioning so that people don't, when the pipeline comes through, they don't sweep up everyone in their promise of, um, well-paid employment that like, you know, we have to have alternatives so that we're not, you know, losing people to these systems um, out of desperation and poverty. Like that's, uh, there's good reasons why they're able to sort of prey on people in that way. Um, but we have to have an alternative to that. Uh, and so I think that's, that's sort of like, can we build alternatives that are more responsible, that are causing, you know, that, that aren't harming the land, that are like, you know, working with those relations and um doing that in a sustainable way and um offer that uh offer that to people and it means a lot of on the ground organizing um and sort of just years of work to build those connections up and that trust as well which like needs to be there um yeah thank you yeah i've been thinking a lot about trust as both uh as a practice, as an, as an action, how to, how to practice trust together. Mm -hmm. Um, and you spoke also about responsibility and I'm just wondering, um, if you had any thoughts on, on particularly obligations and responsibilities of settlers in this work, we could talk about white settlers specifically, but, um, and, and sort of, I, I know it's important that we different, make those kinds of differentiations, um, newcomers, um, that those distinctions, but when thinking about doing this work of, of decolonization, you know, even the question of whether, whether, whether settler folks who are involved in that work have the right to use that, that word. Um, yeah. What your thoughts are around some of that. Um, I mean, I think people get like, 
the the language they get caught up in the language. I think people get caught up in the language of settlers as a, as a starting point. Um, I think it's helpful to kind of decouple that from an identity that needs to be marked. Um, that the the more important uh, idea is how do you how do you like resist and work against these systems that are you know, hurting the earth and are hurting indigenous people. Um, and so for, for me, I mean, I, I prefer like anti-colonial um, because I think that sense of opposition is actually really important. And um, it, it, it's gotten lost in the language of decolonization. And I think when there's a focus more on sort of individual identity, then we, uh, we lose track of the work we have to do. We end up just making... Um, no, I mean, excuses, I guess, if I want to put it bluntly, um, or sort of finding ways to signal each other that we're, we're still good people. Um, and we forget to work. <laughs> and I think that that stuff's more important. The work to be done is too important to, to kind of get caught up in that. So um, I think it is about responsibility. And I think it's about, um, I mean, I think if you said at the beginning, it's about commitment. And um, I, w- I want to see more clear commitments uh, instead of the kind of like um, individual guilt story that often comes with uh, settlers sort of like arriving on indigenous territories, like nobody knows what to do with that story. Um, you know, we don't want to have our labor be constantly caught up in making people feel better for occupying our land. Um you know, the point is to like, how do we disentangle ourselves collectively from these systems? Um, and so, I mean, there's like, I think organization and, um, you know, that have done this better than, than others. And there's sort of ways of approaching this work with indigenous people in ways that I think can be really productive. Um, I think that uh, it, it's not, it's not really done on an individual level. Um, I mean, it's great if people are building individual relationships with Indigenous people, but um, that's not really going to do the work we need to do. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's about that sort of uh, it's an oppositional politics. It's beyond an identity. It's people trying to find ways to, like, collectively organize um, in opposition to these systems. And um, I mean, I, I, I think there's like some sort of like political openings in there. I, I see a lot of people coming through, uh, you know, spaces for indigenous sovereignty who are coming from anarchist communities. I think that, I mean, if you already want to burn it down, then it's like, yeah, that's a great starting point. You're not as caught up in it. Um, you know, people struggle with indigenous leadership as well um, coming from those communities. But I, I mean, there's like, we're at, we're at closer to a common starting point than I think coming from a lot of other political directions. Um, I mean, certainly people who are like thinking with uh, like abolitionist frameworks, I think that can be a really helpful starting point. Because, um, yeah, I think we're we're caught up in these structures that are hard to see. And um, often people have to do a lot of thinking and work on, on their own to figure out how they even are positioned in those structures before they can figure out how they might be um, in a place to, to challenge them. And uh, I think a lot of people get stuck at the point of identifying themselves and their forms of privilege. Um, 
and absorb that individually instead of like really diagnosing it collectively in the, in the sort of structure. Um, and I think it, it stops a lot of people from being super effective in these spaces. Um, yeah. So I think there is like a commitments to that work and um, sort of taking up those pieces of responsibility. Because I mean, a lot of us who are doing the work as Indigenous people, especially on other people's territories, feel this a pretty intense responsibility. And the reason we feel such responsibility, the reason it's such a burden is because of the kinship connections and because of the ways that we're related to different nations. Um, you know, I don't get to function as an individual on Wet'suwet'en territory. Um, I, I come with all of my relations like with me. And so I have to conduct myself in a different way. Um, and I think if other, if other people, if non-Indigenous people sort of started to conceptualize that for themselves, like who are they, who are they accountable to and who do they bring with them and um, stopped trying to function so much as individuals and sort of carried some of that responsibility that we'd be able to share it a little bit, a little bit better. Um, Cause it does, it does get heavy, <laughs> uh, you know, for a lot of us who are, who are trying to sort of do right by all of these different groups at the same time. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really reminds me of some of the work things I'm, I'm, I talk about with my students around the relationship between structure and agency and, collectivity and individualism and they really they folks really want to talk about like consumer activism and a lot and and you know it there's a sense of which like this stuff matters because we need to make sense of our relationship to capitalism and our investment in it um and so sort of critically assess that but then how do we sort of acknowledge that there's all that infrastructure behind us that sort of like, you know, when it's all around us, like when I, when I get, you, you know, it's really hard to like access food outside of a super, outside of a grocery store when I literally have, you know, no access to any kind of space to grow my own food. So, and then you're feeling guilty about that. And then, so um, I think that's a really, how you frame it, I think is really interesting. It's, that's really like important to focus on that, the collective. And the, when I think about the collective, I think, yeah, about all of that sort of structural stuff, but behind us and around us that make it such that it, it's really hard to build alternative ways of like being in the world outside of those, like outside of accessing the same industries, companies, blah, 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 that are causing the harm. And so it's like, how do we extract ourselves from that without like rolling in shame and guilt every day because we like, you know, we, because we have to buy food or like, right. It's, but also acknowledging that like, maybe there's, there are things that we can do individually and to build towards that collective shift so it's a I, to me I, I just find that like a difficult tension to sort of stay with that tension and also yeah not get overly focused on my own either privilege or like you know that sort of thing but also like take responsibility for myself as as in my relations like you said yeah so I don't know if you if you had any anything to add to that I mean I think that um it's 
as as important as it is to like adjust the patterns that are like connecting you to to capitalism and to these corporations um i think it's more important to adjust the social patterns that are connecting you to indigenous people and other groups that um are, are marginalized and so i think like working towards that is produces a whole a whole bunch more opportunities that I think can help people get unstuck when they're in that sort of privilege guilt um, spiral. Um, it, it's it's hard to be precious about uh, like ethical consumption um, in a on a reserve where people are like eating KFC, you know, like and loving it, you know, like you you just have to let go of a bit of of that kind of like. Um, the ways that we we tie that form of identity to our, our consumption, and um, so I, th- I think that that, and it opens up more politi- political possibilities when you have those those connections. And I think like um, that sort of like social disruption in in and looking at like how we're connected to people, kind of socially in community. Um, I think those connections matter more and reforming them matters more than reforming the kind of like web of products that we are um, embedded in. Uh, I mean, like that stuff matters, but it's it's not going to make the major shift that we need it to make if we, you know, buy organic mm-hmm. at Walmart as opposed to, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, I actually, that that's, I see, I see what you mean in the sense of like, okay, if you buy organic at Walmart, but you stay socially and politically isolated, especially as like a white person, you know, who, who's actually maybe not really doing that social work that, that works socially to, and also intellectually and emotionally to sort of build, build away from that. I want to call it sometimes like capitalist and colonial, like kind of spirituality. It's like, it's like such a deep investment in all the structures and all of the like, you know, acquisitionist thinking, individualist thinking, hierarchical thinking, you know, assumptions around supremacy and all sorts of what kinds of supremacy, those ways of thinking, like those mentalities, I think a lot about like, how can we like, work on that too, <laughs> do that harder work. And then I, th- I think it requires, you know, that, like you said, that sort of changing our social networks and like actually moving out of isolation uh, socially and like, um, yeah, culturally in certain ways. So I know you're busy and running, but I just want to ask you um, one question around food, food sovereignty, because a lot of our work is trying to connect land and and food and you know patri- the, the relationship between patriarchy and colonialism and land and food and so when i think about food sovereignty within that context to me i think about and from a feminist lens i think about rematriation i think about but understanding it broadly more broadly speaking and also understanding that that maybe i don't understand rematriation at all but um <laughs> you know, it's such a, to me, it, it, it feels, it feels really complicated or it feels, it feels like something that is kind of not one thing, I guess, maybe that's a better way to put it. It doesn't like, it doesn't feel like I can like have a single definition of it. Where do you see relationships between your understanding, your land politics, how you conceptualize it, whether it be land back, 
um, or, or something else and food sovereignty. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of like overlap in the way, especially sort of moving forward in the way that communities need to be able to have the um, control and autonomy of the way they feed themselves and the production of food. And I think that that's happening in a lot of indigenous communities. Um, I push for that's happening in a lot of, uh, I'd say northern indigenous communities, I guess. Um, it's happening, been happening in the global south for a long time now. But um, I think that, uh, yeah, there's definitely overlap with, with a sense of uh, food sovereignty and there's projects to kind of build that up. Um, I think there's still uh, power in the the uh, sort of terminology of food justice as well. Um, and we also have to be like, I mean, you know, you, you went to the toxic tours, like there's, there's places where, you know, the kinds of like idyllic food production we might imagine in Indigenous communities is can't be safely done um, because of the levels of contamination. And so I think we really have to kind of um, be especially creative and maybe um, more flexible in our terminology. Like we can't apply the same models in Amjanong as we would apply on Wet'suwet'en territory where, you know, the water comes out of the river safe to drink. Um, so I think that, that uh, especially when it comes to sort of food production and how to, um, you know, work with Indigenous communities to make sure that people have uh you know, more resources in terms of their own, their own food production and are able to rely less on, you know, expensive foods being shipped in, um, that we have to be pretty flexible and we're going to have to look, uh, you know, it's going to look a lot different in different ecosystems and different levels of like sort of time depths of colonization and levels of, of toxicity and, and a lot of that. So I think there's like a complexity to that that doesn't really, um, uh, it's not easily sort of uh, absorbed by food sovereignty as a term. Like I think it's like there's there's a bit more going on, um, and for a lot of people, that kind of like political sovereignty is really like the first step to it. And um, you know, there's maybe other ways that we can be working on the the food systems uh, sort of alongside that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it. Uh, out, out west on what's Hoden territory right now, you know, they're, they're fighting against the sort of uh, this pipeline that's trying to go through and the construction's happening currently. And um, at the same time, people are trying to grow gardens and like do that work, but it's, it's really difficult when you have that kind of pressure. And so there's some ways I think we have to kind of like continue the sort of like day-to-day -day work of helping build up resources for people. You don't want to let that go. Um, and at the same time, there's there's just these like really extreme pressure points um, and violence from the state coming in, making all of that really difficult. Uh, and I think having people around who really realize that that is um, that's a justice issue uh, and that it's it's um, an issue that's about survival as well, I, I think is really helpful because industry and the state aren't hearing it that way. You know, they're like, oh, you can keep doing your like cultural practices. And it's like, no, if people don't get a moose this year, they're going to starve. Like that's not, you know, it's not a sort of like additive sort of hobby that people have. It's actually like a, a really central part of um, people's uh, like livelihoods and their ability to sustain themselves. And so I think 
having that understanding built in is really helpful because um, it's been written, written out of the sort of economic context that these projects speak in. Like they're really only concerned about creating jobs for people um, or appearing to create jobs for people. And um, yeah, in the meantime, the sort of like the economy is that people have been using to sustain themselves for, for thousands of years have are, you know, wiped away. You know, we didn't get a moose for two years. Um, you know, and that that's a big deal. And uh, there's no way to sort of like contest that through the like official process or the permits or, you know, the environmental review or the like cultural social review um, of any of these projects. So those connections do need to be made, um, but with like a fair amount of flexibility because it's not, um, yeah, it's going to be a different situation in different places. And those sort of points of pressure are formed differently in different places. People would love to just like, I mean, when I was out there, I was like, I'm so tired of talking to the environmental assessment office. Like I, I, I would just want to be out hunting. I want to be, I want to be out berry picking. I don't want to be doing this. And I told them that every time I picked up the phone, I was like, I, this is the last thing I want to be doing right now. Like I do not want to be speaking to you. Um, this isn't the work that I came here to do, you know, but, um, I'm stuck. I have to talk to you about like how they're destroying stuff again and no one's listening to us. So, um, there's just like, there's no official route to make those kinds of complaints. And so we really do need allies who are able to like see the connections and to help create space for, for that kind of work. Um, so that's what everyone wants to be doing. Everyone wants to be out there like gardening and hunting and, um, preserving food and like fishing and, you know, that's, that's what we want to be doing and we're not able to. So the sort of primacy of the, um, the industry and the push uh, there is like makes a lot of that stuff sort of fall away. Yeah. I really appreciate the way that you uh, contextualize that, like the, the, the privilege, like we can't just make assumptions that, that it's going to be the same in all cases. Om Janong is a perfect example. Um, and, and the ways in which the toxicity of the soil and the water just like, it's, it's like impossible um, and then how do you, so how do you be flexible? Like you said, how do you, um, build, build that relationship in other ways, potentially, um, or in other spaces, or, you know, I, I don't claim to have the answer around that, but it's, it's, um, I think that's a really important point. I, I really, um, appreciate that conversation. I, I, um, I hope I hope things go okay with the, I saw, I got an email. I did see something happening that some work is happening, I think in, in, in Wet'suwet'en there, the, the pipeline companies are moving in or something like that. Yeah. Their aim is to drill under the river. Um, probably in the next few weeks, they, um, so people out there have occupied a drill site and there's currently, I think at least four people locked down um, to prevent the company from accessing that point. So, um, yeah, there's like a lot going on on the ground and we'll sort of see what happens, but, um, it's definitely like sort of amping up and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but in a kind of extended way and the timing is interesting because, uh, all of the sort of normal response teams and there's actually like a, an industry, um, sort of like police response team, 
um, in BC that comes to like respond to mostly Indigenous people who are trying to stop industrial projects. Uh, it's fairly new, but um, all of those teams are out in Ferry Creek. Uh, so are so, those the different teams than what we see when, when like I watch the video of those teams coming on to try to talk to folks? Is that different? Is it, is this a new sort of? Yeah. So they have like sort of the regular local RCMP. They usually don't really talk to anybody and they don't do a whole lot. Um, they have the division liaison team. Those are like the sort of Aboriginal liaisons. They try to get native cops to go and do that. Um, but I think they've had a hard time lately because it, it's 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 rough. Um, so those are the talkers. They come in, um, you know, they don't have visible firearms. They like try to talk you down from things. Um, so they were in there. So they're usually the ones who are out there actually speaking. And then there's um, uh, the, uh, well, there's like a community industry safety office and a community industry response group, um, CERG. And then they're the ones who will come in and actually like, enforce the injunction um, and sort of remove people. And then they have a kind of like a more tactical response group. And those people are also often stationed close to these things happening. Um, and they're the ones with the technical knowledge to like pull somebody off of a tower or uh, cut somebody out of a hard lock or that kind of thing. Um, so all of those like more specialized units are out in Ferry Creek uh, with all the resistance out there. And um yeah, but there was like a community, they had this like community industry safety office that they had set up on the the logging road out to the camps on Wet'suwet'en territory where they like had a sort of constantly surveilling crew of people who were there to enforce the injunction. I, I every time I sort of hear about the, the the enforcement, I just think about like how much money and resources are being allocated to enforcing injunctions enforcing um like acting acting for for private interests like acting with and for private interests i'm sure somebody maybe yourself is is sort of making those calculations and adding up that those costs mm-hmm. but wow yeah it occasionally comes out and it's it, it's often higher than the number they give but you know like millions and millions of dollars they um and a lot of the time that's just like uh, I mean, they have like the uh, the sort of like big expenses, like the raids um, and like, you know, when they have upwards of 70 officers on the ground and they've all done their training. And so they've had to pay them for all of that. And then there's people just patrolling daily, like usually like at least a couple drive through these logging roads a day. Um, and so there's that sort of like daily surveillance, helicopter surveillance. Like it's a lot. It's a wild amount of money and like labor power that's getting used for this. So can, can uh, I ask, I'm, I'm sorry to sort of jump in. I'm, I'm so confused when I, when these stories crop up, of course, this one has been out of the headlines for a while. Now you're talking about it sort of flaring up again. Like I, is there not some sort of like formal legal, like what, as you've said, like there's an acknowledgement of the unseated sort of, you know, basis of these territories. Like why, what, I'm so confused as to the legality of this and like how they can continue to function in this way without a sort of legal, or is it just because they call it crown land, that's crown land. And that is enough legal justification that they need. It's partially because of the way that the courts operate. So they're able to get, the company's able to get an injunction um, sort of based on 
the going through the sort of proper permitting project process. Um, the companies find somebody who will consent, right? So they talk to the band offices um, and the band councils uh, who don't have jurisdiction over like the whole territory. You know, like they're supposed to be uh, have governance over the re- reservation, and that's it. Um, and so they get those folks to sign off. So their permits are all in order. And then, um, you know, they're basically like good to go. And then when the the like traditional governance structure, which in this case is these uh, sort of set of hereditary chiefs, um, when they say like, you actually don't have consent to, to proceed, um, the, the courts consider that like a higher level issue that they can't deal with in the injunction hearing. So what we heard from them in, uh, from the judge when the uh, injunction sort of went to court is that um, there are some issues around like, you know, land claims, this is a possible title case, but you'd have to bring that to uh, a higher court that, that that's like a higher sort of issue. And, you know, that's a, that's a, a case that would be millions of dollars um, on the part of the Wet'suwet'en to bring it so it, it would require home. it would require some sort of defense team or some some sort mm-hmm. of like yeah civil so, liberties so, civil liberties thing to take on a case that is going to be litigated for millions of dollars in multiple years okay yeah so the courts just sort of like they're like oh that's not our that's not our lane we're going to stay in our lane what we can see in our lane is that the the company has the permits that in place that they that they need to have and that um, these sort of blocks to their access are causing them um, you know, financial harm, um, irreparable harm is what they call it. <laughs> um, and so they're able to kind of push it through on those terms. And uh, yeah, and it sort of like, despite the fact that there's like historic court cases that say that, you know, the Wet'suwet'en still have title to this land and that title was never extinguished, um, you know, they would ha- that would still have to go up to a kind of higher level court case and it all has to go through the courts. And on the ground, the RCMP don't know the law. Um, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't right. know what it is they're enforcing. They're just, they're there because um, people are breaching an injunction order and the injunction order is fairly straightforward. It's like, you know, you can't block the road. You can't be in within 10 meters of a, of this equipment. Um, right. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're not anything beyond that. They're really not interested in. It's just there. No. To, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it is just kind of stunning that they're able to do that. Um, that you know, there's, there should be, you know, the the hereditary chief saying no should be enough, um, and it's never sort of like an acceptable response. Like they were just able to kind of skirt around it um, through these legal processes that, uh, yeah, record, put all the burden on the people there to like be bringing things to higher and higher courts, um, and they're very tired. I mean, these are the same people who. Uh, sort of like fought the Delgamuk case, you know, which went through in 97. And so they spent, you know, 20 years preparing that case and um, put a lot of time into sort of proving that the territory is theirs. And they're like, do we have to do it again? Like, what? <laughs> why didn't it work the first time? You know? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I just can't kind of imagine that level of like existential exhaustion around just yeah. wanting to be like safe on your on your territory and then having to like confront that, like not just day after day, but like decades and decades and decades. It's, it's yeah. truly uh, like awful. Yeah, yeah. It's a really brutal process. And um, 
yeah, it all gets sort of like filtered through these like court processes, which are also dehumanizing and expensive and difficult. And yeah, um, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't have to prove it <laughs> um, at that point. So yeah, it is it is frustrating. And uh, yeah, on the on the ground, it's just it's like it's like the company and they have their script and they just read the injunction over and over and um, you know, there's no way to kind of like logic them out of it. That's just uh. Yeah, they just follow that sort of set of steps. Yeah. Well, um, thank you. Thank you, Anne. That was really, that was a really interesting uh, conversation. Also, we'll try and check in with Danielle. But thanks a lot. And um, like I said, I hope, I hope things go okay. I'll be, I'll be following. I've been sort of following. I'll, I'll keep up to date on that. Cool. Thanks. Thank you so much to Anne for taking the time to speak with us today, especially during such a difficult time out on Wet'suwet'en territory. I'd also like to thank my fellow collaborators and friends, Taryn Giacomini, Lauren Kepkowitz, Danielle Boissonneau, Adrienne Lickers-Xavier, and Ayla Fenton. And thank you to our research assistants, Stephanie Morningstar, Sonia Hill, and Jessica Ross. And also thanks to Jaron Richards for all of your wonderful tech support. Another shout out to the National Farmers Union, Indigenous Solidarity Working Group for all of your support and ongoing collaboration, as well to the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council for your funding support. That's all for today's episode. Tune in again, and we'll see you soon. Bye.